I always had the attitude that I had to work harder just to get to the same place as my male counterparts. And I think most groups entering new cultures have to do that. But what men need to understand is that all minority groups, all outsiders bring fresh thinking and something important to the table. If you've got 12 white men sitting around the table, you have by and large one way of thinking. And if you bring one woman, one person of color, one person with different sexual orientation, they're going to bring different thoughts to the table and the table is going to be stronger. Some of my biggest contributions were because I thought differently and because I wasn't included in the normal boys' clubs. I didn't even know not to speak my own mind. I spoke my own mind all the time. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G alumni podcast. I'm Raman Segal, recovering marketer. And I'm Rajiv Sethyal, the funny Indian. Raman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, Many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know or want to know more about. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader Peg Wyant, founder and CEO of Grandin Properties. It was an insightful conversation about what it takes to persevere when the odds may be against you, to challenge the status quo and outperform to break through boundaries, and playing the game of life as a team sport. Here's a quick bio. Peg broke the glass ceiling at Procter & Gamble in 1967, a decade before the phrase entered the lexicon. When the company tried to put her in the typing tool, she responded with, all I can do is think. Don't you have a test for that? She rose through the ranks, becoming a serial first female, including first brand manager and first direct report to the CEO as head of strategic planning and acquisitions. After leaving P&G to become an almost full-time mom, Peg sought other challenges. She consulted for Fortune 500 CEOs, founded a venture capital fund focused on women-led companies, and then launched Grandin Properties, a real estate development and management company in Cincinnati, Ohio, which focuses on walkable urban neighborhoods. Outside her business career, Peg helped found the Procter & Gamble Alumni Network and the Women's Capital Club. She has recently written a book, One Red Shoe, the story of corporate America's first woman. She and her husband, Jack, have four children and nine grandchildren. What I love about our conversation is Peg's focus on multifaceted support and mentorship to break through boundaries and create new paths that had no roadmap. I think our thoughts on running twice as hard to stay in the same place will resonate for many listeners seeking to change the status quo. From her varied experiences as the first female brand manager when Procter & Gamble used to refer to the role as brand man, to navigating work and motherhood at a time when the concept of maternity leave did not exist, to starting and failing in ventures, and now working with her children on the board of her real estate company. Peg reminds us that the foundation of successful leadership is a focus on people. So let's dive in. We hope you will enjoy our conversation with Peg Wyant. Peg, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Well, Peg, Many already know your professional story, but here's a quick recap for our listeners. 
Pegg broke the glass ceiling at Procter & Gamble in 1967, a decade before the phrase entered the lexicon. When the company tried to put her in the typing pool, she responded with, all I can do is think. Don't you have a test for that? She rose through the ranks, becoming a serial first female, including first brand manager and first direct report to the CEO as head of strategic planning and acquisitions. After leaving P&G to become an almost full-time mom, Peg sought other challenges. She consulted for Fortune 500 CEOs, founded a venture capital fund focused on women-led companies, and then launched Grandin Properties, a real estate development and management company in Cincinnati, Ohio, which focuses on walkable urban neighborhoods. Outside her business career, Peg helped found the Procter & Gamble Alumni Network and the Women's Capital Club. She has recently written a book, One Red Shoe, the story of corporate America's first woman. She and her husband, Jack, have four children and nine grandchildren. Peg, there is so much in there I want to ask about. But first, who were you before the beginning of your career journey? I was an outsider. I was a total outsider just all by myself. Nobody ever asked me to lunch, not for several months. And so I put my head down and I worked and it turned out to be kind of an advantage. But I never doubted that I could make progress there if I worked hard enough and did a little bit better than the other people around. I love that. You know, Peg, considering the way your career started at PNG without having that support structure that I think now many of us look to. I know in my first days at PNG, I was connected right away with another female manager in marketing to serve as a mentor. They now have specific programs in place to help support females, affinity groups for people of different cultures and nationalities. And you didn't have that as you were coming up through PNG. Who did you look to for your mentorship and your support system? Oh, I will say I didn't have that, but I had something even better, I think, that there were no small, in no small measure, there were bad boys and skeptics who really didn't want me around. But there were the leaders who at that point were not my peers, but not far from that, Tom Laco and John Pepper and, and John Smale, who whenever I asked to be considered differently, it seemed to be that they were open to it. So I could make progress by having them be my mentors, actually. And that was a pretty exciting place to be when you have people of that caliber looking after you. And the other thing about being the only female was that a lot of people in big corporations struggle for attention. And that was never my problem. (laughs) I got lots of attention. Matter of fact, when the promotion for brand manager came around and it was announced by My group products manager, I was told the first sentence was the board of directors approved your promotion to brand manager today. So if I did well, everybody knew it. If I did poorly, everybody knew it too, but that was a great advantage. So there were lots of hurdles, but there were also lots of special aspects of that. The idea that being the only one or the first one, it's double-edged sword, right? There's some pros and some cons to that. I know that you continued working even after having your first child at a time that P&G and many corporations, it wasn't P&G alone, but you know, at this time, there weren't a lot of things in place for leave and mat leave and those types of things. So you actually stayed beyond your first trimester at a time when most people and most companies told women to stop working. And not only that, 
after you had your child, you continued to work without pay for three months. Can you take us through that? Your thinking and, and maybe the lessons learned in that experience? I loved my job and I also loved my husband and the fact that we were going to have a child and I didn't want to give up either one. So when I was told at the end of the four months that I had to retire to leave and the expectation was you would not come back. And I said, but I don't want to do that. And I understand medically there's no reason for that. Again, that was a time where a guy named Sandy Weiner, who was a a great leader and Tom Laco intervened and said, okay, we're going to let you try this, but we'll replace you when you go on leave. And I said, no, 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 I have another idea. I didn't want to leave my assignment, which was Cascade, which was a very coveted assignment, mainly because nobody above me had ever run it. So I could sort of run my own show and I will run the brand from home without pay. And people, when they hear that today, are kind of appalled that Procter & Gamble would allow me to do that. But the other side of the story is that for Procter & Gamble not to have the brand manager on site at their beck and call at all time, and remember this was way before Zooms or any any flexibility and scheduling, whatever, that was a big deal. They took a big risk. And you know what? It worked extremely well, but I, I have compliments on both sides and for getting through that. And matter of fact, just to continue the story, a few years later, when I had trouble getting childcare, because childcare as we know it today did not exist. There were not people trained as nannies. There were not good daycare centers. And I went in once when our childcare person was going to leave, and I had a month or so notice. And I went into John Pepper and said, sadly, I'm going to have to depart. And strangely enough, nobody paid any attention. Normally, they would work to replace a manager if they were going to leave the company or do something. And they didn't do anything. And two days before I went into John again, I said, I don't think you heard me because no one had ever left for childcare reasons. And he picked up the phone But I said, I am leaving. I will not be back on Monday. And he called his wife, Francie, which gave you an idea of how much help I just did get. Francie said aloud, loud, no. But I did get a month leave of absence just to figure out the solution. It was challenging for sure because none of the past had been mowed before. It's amazing. As I hear you talking about some of the P&G greats here that you worked with, John Smale, John Pepper, and it sounds like John Pepper in particular was really an advocate of yours and helped you transition through a lot of these different firsts for you and for the company. What are some of your learnings from working with and watching leaders like this? Oh, gosh, from each of them. You learn a different thing from Pepper. I learned, like we all learned, the importance of people. He is first and foremost a people person that gets the best out of everybody and is everybody's advocate. From John Smale, I worked with John directly the last five years I was there on acquisitions and strategic planning. And John was brilliant guy, and he was all business, and he was very directed and focused. And what I learned from him is that he had a vision, an vision in his head of what Proctor needed to be, and it was not anything like what it was at the time. And with that vision, he could direct traffic, and he was going to get there. And I learned that from from John Smale, that always look at the end of the road, don't look at anything in between, and you can navigate 
very well. While I'm talking about mentors, I will say there's another John in my life, which is Jack, who's my husband, and who is the prince of positivity. And from him, I learned, and he was always my cheerleader. He actually worked for me. And people who fool around with sexual harassment could said, wait a minute, he worked for you and you married him. But he was a very positive thinker and very positive about my role at a time when men looked at me as something to avoid like the plague because most women were entirely supportive of their husbands. They weren't out there competing, let alone at a higher level. And Jack always saw that my skills as an asset, not a liability. I'm so glad you brought that up because we'd be remiss not to mention that in addition to having the support of a company, you need the support of your partner, especially at a time when you were doing things that a lot of people in the culture at the time did not support. So he was a pioneer right there with you and helped enable this, it sounds like. And as you think about some of the lessons that you had from John Pepper and John Smale, you, of course, are our PNG great in your own right, trailblazing and leading the way for all of us females looking on and, and starting to join PNG after you. What is some of your advice for other female leaders trying to make their way in corporate America? Because as you know, while we've made a ton of progress, there is still the glass ceiling. There are still incredible boundaries and challenges in terms of women being able to work their way up in corporate America. Do you have any advice today, not only for females, but also for our male counterparts? Oh, for females, I'd say, first of all, let me back up. I always had the attitude that I had to work harder and I had to be better just to get to the same place as my male counterparts. And I didn't object to that at all. When I looked at Procter & Gamble at the time I joined, it was a very, very successful company. And why in heaven's name would they change who ran it unless the people coming in could actually outperform? And I do think that people who are outsiders in the beginning, people representing diversity, actually do outperform in a number of ways, which we can talk about in a minute, because they bring new thinking to the company. In terms of what I would tell young women, have you read the Alice in Wonderland? And if you remember what the Red Queen said to Alice is you have to run twice, twice as hard to stay in the same place. And I think women need to do that because we still do have probably more responsibility in the household than most men are willing to take. And we have to do very well in our careers in order to get the attention that we deserve. So you do have to be better. And until most groups entering new cultures do have to do that. So that's what I would suggest people do. On the male side, what I would suggest is that If you have a room, we, first of all, haven't given any women anywhere near as much power in the career place as we ought to. I think only something like 6 or 7% of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are women, and that's nowhere near enough. I mean, I started in the 60s, for heaven's sakes. That's a long time ago, and the fact that it's only 6 or 7% is pretty disappointing. And I reported directly to the CEO and there weren't many other of us who did, maybe three or four other people. And so I think, wait a minute, why aren't we better than that? We need to be better. But what men need to understand, I believe, is that 
all minority groups or all outsiders bring fresh thinking and something terribly, terribly important to the table. If you've got 12 white men sitting around the table, you have by and large 12 one way of thinking. And if you bring one woman, one person of color, one person with di- different sexual orientation, they're going to bring different thoughts to the table and the table is going to be stronger as a result. And I'm not so sure everybody fully realizes that. Some people are walking the talk, but I don't know that that's fully internalized. And some of my biggest contributions at Procter & Gamble, I would be quick to say, were because I brought that different kind of thinking to the table, which is why, by the way, I think John Smale asked me to work directly for him when I wasn't as senior or as striped as many other people he could have chosen. I thought differently. And I was, and because I wasn't included, by the way, in the normal boys clubs, I didn't even know not to speak my own mind. I spoke my own mind all the time. <laughs> Sometimes that's a blessing, right? Not knowing can actually work to our advantage. I think that's right. I do think that that's right. So Peg, I love that example about Alice in Wonderland and having to run twice as hard to stay in the same place. And I would love if you could tell us a little bit about your book, One Red Shoe, which actually has some lessons related to this idea. I got the idea of writing One Red Shoe about five years ago when a young woman in Brooklyn said to me, you should write a book. And my response was, my story is ancient history. And she said, oh, but Peggy, it's not. We still have challenges. And that's why I wrote it. And I do take all the stories in my life as it relates to life balance and career successes and failures and put them into a One Red Shoe. And I hope it is helpful a bit to young women and men who are trying to make their way up the ladder. I think it definitely can be in addition to all of the wonderful leadership lessons that you've given us in our chat today. Peg, as we've talked about your career and some of the experiences that you've had being able to trailblaze and be the first in many ways, was there ever a time in your career that something didn't quite work out the way you had hoped? Oh, my heavens. More times than I would like to admit. <laughs> I started a company right out of college, which went bankrupt. When I worked at Procter & Gamble, I, first of all, was turned down a bunch of times and I couldn't get a job. That was disappointing. After I worked there, I was completely incompetent for three or four months until one night I went in late at night and took all the papers out of both sides of my desk and put them in the shredder because I thought that was the only way I could possibly catch up. My first marriage was a failure and I could go on. <laughs> That's probably enough for starters. But if we don't, if we don't fail, it means we probably haven't set the bar high enough. If you're going to set the bar high, you're going to trip a lot of times and you don't learn. All of our children are very competent squash players, so they have competed a lot. And their coach used to say that you don't learn when you win. You really don't. You only learn when you lose because you analyze and go through it and figure out how can I be better? How can I do better the next time? Looking at what we can learn from our missteps often can right. be even more informative than winning and taking the right steps. Right, right. Peg, you mentioned your children and them playing squash. I know we touched upon your first child at P&G and how you took time off and worked actually without pay. You actually have four children. And it was actually after your fourth child 
when you left and started your own business. Can you take us a little bit through that? And what was the thinking that led you to starting your own business, becoming an entrepreneur, and how you've managed that and the work-life balance along the way? The first one would be, why did I leave P&G? And I left P&G, you're right, it was after the fourth child. And it was really a it had been a debate for two or three years because it was very hard to manage four children and a career. And as I mentioned also, men did not typically do much around the household. It just wasn't something in our frame of thinking. And so I was stretched, but I loved the company and I had a great future there. And I knew as the first woman, I would be rich and famous if I stayed there, but it wasn't going to work. And so with a lot of tears, I left all by myself one day walking down the street. And it was a hard decision, but I left importantly because not long before I had gone off to work and our then five-year-old followed me down the driveway with tears streaming down his face. And I thought, you know what? Something's got to give. And so I gave it up and I don't regret it, by the way, at all, because I went on to, it went on and I opened a lot of other doors and the family wouldn't be the same if I had continued to pursue my own goals. And I am so proud of where our children are and their children now that I couldn't have done it all. Maybe you can do it all if you have no children or one child or two, but four. I mean, my heavens, that's wretched excess. (laughs) And you can't do that with that many kids. And so I'm really pleased. And I took a hiatus for a while. And then I tried to go back to work. And once again, I found that everybody turned me down. The first time it was because companies didn't hire women. The second time it was because if you're a full-time mom, you're considered brain dead. That's really sad, but that's true. And companies think that you've lost your skills. I figured coming into this interview that I've probably applied for about 20 jobs in my life. And the only person, the only company that ever took me was Proctor. And so I, once again, (laughs) which is funny, but once again, when I got turns down, I thought, you know, I'm going to start my own company. So I started another company. I started a real estate company. I started a venture capital firm focused on women. And I've started some networking groups. I was one of the founders of the Alum Association, by the way, just because we needed to establish networks. So I've, I've had the great pleasure of having started a lot of things, and I'm really happy about that. You mentioned a woman focus. And I know that you started Isabella Capital, a fund focused on women-owned and led companies delivering top quartile results. Can you take us through your thinking there of the focus on women and what you did to support women-owned businesses? Well, my husband's a venture capitalist and hanging around him at various conferences, I quickly realized this was in the late 90s, that women were not included in that sphere of influence at all. There were very few women capitalists, almost none in the country, and there were the guys did not invest in women-led companies. They invested in about 5% of the capital in women-led companies, even though women were founders of about 40% of companies in the country. So I didn't start it as a social service at all. I thought this is a big business opportunity because I'm going to put venture in an area where there is competence and there is no capital. And we did outperform the guys. It was a difficult run. I didn't know what I was doing. So for the first half of the money I invested, I lost 100% of it in 
about a year and a half. The second half I did, you know, much better. And so we ended up with an outperformance total record. Sad to say today, there's only 3% of the venture capital that goes into women-led businesses. So instead of progress, it's actually declined. But I'm doing something else now. So that's, that's up to somebody else to fix that one. But there's great opportunities there. I'm interested in this idea that you mentioned how you lost money at the beginning. What got you to keep going? Because I think so many people throw in the towel if they have a loss like that. What got you to keep going? You know, just an attitude. I think failure is not an option. My partners, my investors would have been thrilled after I lost half the money that I didn't call the rest because they didn't have any belie- any reason to believe I could succeed at all. And in the early days, what I did was follow the venture capital model and it just didn't work. It was a bad time and it didn't work for me at all because in late 99, people were throwing too much money at too many companies with too high valuations. So we had an annual meeting actually and I announced that we had lost all the money invested to date and I was going to call the second half and there was like a noticeable groan in the in the around the room and then I motioned to the waiters and asked them to bring in buckets of tomatoes and the sign came on or the PowerPoint came on with a slide that said now it's time for investor participation and they you know rather than toss the rotten tomatoes at me they kind of laughed and gave me the money <laughs> but my attitude was failure is simply not an option it's not an option ever really. I mean, you can fail for a while, but then you get up and you do it again and you you make it work, which is what happened. I love that you came up with the idea of tomatoes. Was that just a spontaneous thing you came up with? No, it was planned because I okay. knew I knew nobody was interested in giving me more of their funds and I knew they had no reason to believe I could make it work. And I don't know why in retrospect I had the nerve to do it, to be perfectly honest, because I didn't have any reason to believe I could make it work, except I just didn't wanna I just didn't wanna fail. I think that grit is so critical, not only in the corporate world, but especially to entrepreneurs. And I think you've shown that by going on and starting additional ventures, including the very successful Grandin Properties. What has been some of your toughest lessons learned, do you think, being an entrepreneur that have made you better? Oh, again, I think the really tough lessons come when you fall down you know, if you, if I, in my case, would buy a building, I started buying buildings in Cincinnati and over the Rhine in 94. Well, in 90, 1994, over the Rhine was the highest crime rate in the entire United States. You had to be crazy to do that. But I'd lived in New York and Boston a bit. And I thought, this is great architecture. It can be something great someday. So I like to think I could see the end of the road. I was just way too soon. But at first, the buildings I bought did not work. And then in 01, we had riots. And then it wasn't until a few years later that when the city was more supportive that I got back involved. But I suppose that's really the main thing. And then on the development front, there have been some challenges getting through the city or competition or whatever. But they were nowhere near as hard as the venture capital industry. The venture capital industry really doesn't, isn't very friendly to women. And if I can be critical of men, I think it's easy to give away power at low levels. If you talk about the pinnacle of money, 
it's a little tougher. They, you know, surround the fortress with a little bit stronger chains. And I ran up against that. So real estate in comparison has been an easier run. Everything that's going on today with COVID and all of the challenges that's brought, and then of course, also a boom in the real estate market now. How do you think about the future as it relates to your real estate company? And what has you the most excited these days? Oh, I'm always excited about the next development. The operation side of it is not the side that lights my fire. So I'm always looking at the next building, the next neighborhood or whatever, and that's what excites me. Real estate is on fire right now, and interest rates have never been lower and the values have never been higher. So I'm actually selling a couple of buildings because I think it's smart to take some things off the table. But, you know, I'll go on to do another project because I like to do that. You've brought on a lot of new executives to your company. Are there any lessons that you take from your own days at P&G and your additional experiences having started other companies as you started to fill your own executive roles at your company? Oh, yeah. People are the most important, obviously. That's why you have this podcast. And so you want good people. You want people mainly who are workers and of character. That's the main thing. And if you don't have character, you don't have anything. And all of the things that I learned at P&G are applicable, everything from how to write to how to analyze to how to prioritize. So those things, hopefully, we do pass on. And speaking of passing on, we love to help our listeners think about advice for themselves for the future. If you think back to your younger self, let's say you had a time machine. (laughs) What advice would you give your younger self? I wouldn't give any advice to my younger self because my (laughs) younger self wouldn't have listened. (laughs) I think you have to live it. You have to do it. You have to do it for yourself. Love that. And then related to that, do you have any concerns about the future as you think about the next generation? Oh, for sure. I think the most overwhelming from my perspective is global warming. And we tried Grandin to do our small part. We were the first ones to do a gold lead certified building. That's not uncommon, but we put solar panels on the roof and no other company in the city has done that yet. No other profit making company. So I'm deeply concerned about that. And we do try to do our part. I'm also concerned about the divisiveness of leaders, of many of our leaders, politics being the most obvious. Life at the end of the day is a team sport. And if I were to give them some advice, I would say that's the way they ought to view it. You know, all they're doing, all the leaders are as captains of a team, and they better bring that team along in a positive way. Is that something, Peg, that you've incorporated even into your family life? The idea life is a team sport? Oh, I like to think so. Grandin Properties, for example, was founded. I mean, I started fooling around with real estate and actually in 89 and just sort of kept adding properties. And I'd go off on a tangent, like start a venture capital fund, but I'd come back to real estate. And in 2000, when the children were actually teenagers, some of them, I put all four of them on the board and they have helped steer the company this entire period of time. And I listened to them the very first meeting 
they suggested that I get out of Over the Rhine. They said, Mom, we really don't need to lose you to a gunshot wound. So they came back the next time and we had the next meeting. There were no more Over the Rhine buildings. And they knew I loved it. But if you're going to have a board, you're going to have to listen to them. So I like to think we've built this company up with, in a way which has included some of their able advice. And what do you think your children would say they've learned from you? I hope they would say that they've learned that I love them. And Jack and I both do. And family is first. People are always first, you know, whether it's, but that's what I hope that they would say. And then there's some other lessons, maybe like I'm a worker, but that's much less important than being a lover. It sounds like you've learned from them and they have learned from you to your point about it being a team sport. Peg, I want to make sure that we have time for our fun questions. So what's a fact about you that surprises people? I have been known to dance on tables. <laughs> Any particular type of music? No, whatever moves me at the time. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think I read that you're the queen of laughter somewhere, and I like to have a good time. I'm a hard worker, but I have a good time in life too. <laughs> That's fantastic. I started dancing every day, and I had started posting videos. It wasn't part of the laughter piece, but just the idea of, of trying to make sure that I get some fun in the day and get some movement in. Mm-hmm. Good. If you had infinite resources to go do or learn anything, what would it be? Oh, you know, I've thought about that question. But the thing about that is that I am so satisfied with where I am. And there's very little that I don't do that I that is possible that I can't do. And so I don't have a particular desire to travel any particular place in the world. We're going to the Grand Canyon next week on a biking trip, a backroads biking trip where the two oldest and their children are going to be with us. And I think that that's, that's just a real high point for me. So I don't have to travel to a, some unknown resort. I also go once a year with our daughter to a health spa. That's a super treat. And pretty much I don't dream about things. I do the things that I want to do. That's a great lesson in living the life that you want to live. Why have additional things that you want to do? Just go do them. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. (laughs) Because life is short at the end of the day. And we just have to do things. We have to start things. That's, That's important. I couldn't agree more. You mentioned that you've gone all the places that you want to go or you make it happen if there's a new place. What about Since you know Cincinnati so well with your real estate company and having lived there for a number of years, what's your favorite thing to do in Cincinnati? Oh, my heavens. I like to bike around. I love the parks. I love opera. I love our friends here. Socialize with friends. I think that that's really good. And it's nice to be able to do that again in a post or almost post-COVID era. Fantastic. And what is a piece of advice or challenge that you would give to the next generation? Oh, I would say make a difference. It doesn't matter what path you choose to go down or what you do or even how high you get in any given field. You have to work hard to make the world a different and better place. Ever since I was an early manager at Procter & Gamble interviewing people, I would run across people with their fancy GP, you know, grade points and leadership positions and sports accomplishments. But I'd say when all said and done, let's step back from that. And you went, so you went to Princeton. How is that place different and better because you were there? And if they couldn't answer that, they didn't move, didn't move my needle very much. So I think making a difference is really what we should all be trying to do and just move the needle a little bit more on the positive side of life. We all have been put here 
to achieve something, whether or not we perceive that as something godly given or not, regardless of how everyone may think about religious types of things, I do think we each have a purpose and we've got to live out that purpose. And to your point, I think move the needle in any way that we can. Positive. And Ida, before we close, I'd like to give a bit of a shout out to Procter & Gamble. For me, I had started a company but by the time I came there, but it definitely was business, if not 101, it was business 102. And so all the things that were important to learn in business, I learned at the company, you know, how to write, how to get things done, how to make money, how to be a leader. And that's really a wonderful thing. I also think that Procter & Gamble has been my standard of excellence for a long time. After I left, I, I worked for several Fortune 500 companies, always the CEO, always on an important subject like strategic planning or acquisitions. And none of them were quite of the caliber in terms of character or excellence as the people that I knew at P&G. And thirdly, it's my family. I found my husband there, our oldest child worked there, my brother-in-law I fixed up with Jack's sister. And many, many of our friends are still, even though we've been gone from Proctor a long time, all of us, my husband and I, as well as our son, many of our friends are Proctor and Gamble. So that's pretty much of a high compliment to a company that sometimes people just work for. It's served all those roles for for me and our family. So it's a thank you. Thank you for that shout out. We joke here in the alumni network that you can try leaving PNG, but you never really leave, right? You're still <laughs> no, you're still no. always a part of that PNG alumni family. No, that's right. Peg, thank you so much for sharing part of your journey and learnings with us. It's been such a pleasure to have you on our Learnings with Leaders podcast today. Thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast or email pgalumpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now here's a preview of next week's episode things that could seem innocuous in talent discussions can affect your career moving forward. Racism can come in many forms and not just the ways that you see on television and you have to figure out what do you want to stand for it. I've had to be the lone voice in multiple leadership conversations but I've chosen the path of being courageous and being okay with saying the thing that may not be safe but is my truth and what needs to be said. When you get into these executive roles, how do you bring people up with you? And how do you help to change the dynamic, to change the way the corporation looks? How do you create the succession planning where you have other people that may have diverse thought and culture that can come behind you so you're not the only one? That's it for this week. I've been Ida Abdelkani. And I'm still Raman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.